Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, uh, what what is in this room with us right now? What, what? <sighs> pure sweet oxygen. Not pure. It's actually. Yeah. But a little oxygen Most, in there. There's oxygen in there. There's but, some nitrogen. Because we are breathing and we are alive right now and we're not concerned about running out because the room is relatively well ventilated. I mean, they had to cover up most of the ventilation with soundproofing, but right. I think there, a little air is getting in, just enough. As long as we don't go three or four hours in here, we'll probably not die. Which is a good thing, right? Yeah. Um, and typically, we don't go three or four hours in here anyway. No, one podcast followed by a second, like two hours max. Yeah. yeah. If yeah. we go over, maybe we could punch in a little bit towards that three-hour point, but there's still plenty of oxygen. That's my point. And that, yeah, that's the main concern here, and that's what we're talking about today. Oxygen, how did it get here mm-hmm. and into us, um, how can we manipulate it? Because that's always a question, right? Like, right. hmm, this is so cool. How can we use it for our own gain? And, um, of course, we're going to explore, as you already sort of alluded to, one of those tropes in films like, oh, there's not enough oxygen. <laughs> in 30 seconds, we're going to run out. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in your, sp- your space movies, your underwater movies, that's always an important trope. I mean, because the core idea here is that Humans have evolved to live in a very particular uh, portion of our atmosphere. Right. And if you start going too high, you start going too low. If you move outside of that atmosphere and into uh, you know an underwater environment or out into the into orbit, then you have to bring a portion of your actual atmosphere with you in some sort of pressurized container or at least uh, an air mask. Um, I was recently looking into uh, Winston Churchill, and uh, during the the uh, Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they they developed uh, this egg for him to uh, recline in and smoke in and read in um, egg be- an egg a big pressurized egg because okay. the the planes that they were depending on they were not pressurized okay so you would have to wear an air mask to go at a high altitude and you would need to be at a high altitude uh, you know to be safe mm-hmm. uh, in a in a war torn world um, but sadly they never actually used this egg uh, but uh, it's just another example like you want Winston Churchill up there. Um, out of a comfortable um, area of the atmosphere, well, then you have to have an egg of atmosphere for Winston Churchill to take with him. So this was this idea, like, if everything went to crap with the war, how do we save Winston Churchill? It was just more like, how do we fly him around uh, at a high altitude and keep him comfortable and safe? Uh, And it just turned out that it was too large to fit in the airplane, and then it was too heavy to fit in the the airplane after that. I have a blog post on it. Uh, You can go check it out. And then there's all that cigar smoke. Oh yeah, yeah, and he was going to smoke in it too. Yeah. That was that was a core uh, uh, design uh, principle there. Well, we have been trying to uh, you know take oxygen into our own hands for a long time, and I would say this is this is something that was pretty popular. I don't know, maybe in the early two thousands, oxygen bars. I, I've heard a lot about these, and now I've, I've read a little bit, but I've I've never seen one. I've never visited one. Um, just heard. I remember hearing stuff about how Michael Jackson Jackson supposedly slept in an oxygen tent, and I guess that's that's. Partially related. Like a hyperbaric one? I think so. Uh, but again, this may be complete hearsay, and I don't want to tarnish the man's good name. Sure. Um, all right. So there is this idea that there's a purity in this oxygen, right? If right. you just get more of it, then maybe you could think clear. And so that's what these oxygen bars were trying to sell to people. Like, sit down and have a 20-minute huff of some of this oxygen like, I don't think the concentration was like 40%. Compared to the 21% that we normally get. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is, you're not really getting anything out of it, right? Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, 
there are certain vitamins, of course, that you can, I mean, some vitamins you can have, you can have a toxic reaction to, but other vitamins, if you take over the recommended amount, you're just going to pee it out anyway. I mean, your body has evolved to deal with certain levels of intake. And uh, if you exceed some of those levels, uh, if it doesn't hurt you, then it it's not really going to do you any good. Right. Because as you said, 21 percent. That's yeah. what we're sort of molded for. That's what we crawled out of the muck and, uh, <laughs> and and evolved to deal with. So yeah, if you if you have something tremendously stronger, then you start. Um, it's not going to really pay off. Right, because at that level, at twenty one percent, the blood is almost completely. We're talking about ninety nine percent saturated. Mm-hmm. So that means there's really no need for more oxygen. Now, of course, in uh, in hospital environments, you'll sometimes see a hundred percent oxygen administered for a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they they still they have to be careful with that because uh, that can result in various health problems in some individuals if it's uh, if there's prolonged use. So again, it it underlines the fact that we've we've developed we've evolved to deal with twenty one percent and uh, going higher doesn't help and it could conceivably hurt in some situations. Yeah. And if you're wondering, like, why is oxygen really important in the first place? Well, we should celebrate it at all times, really, uh, because it's one of the reasons why life here on Earth exists in the first place. That's right. If you travel back far enough in time, you will encounter a, a very different world than we have now. Yeah, because if you think about it, for the first two billion years of Earth's existence, we're talking about this mottled volcano pocked planet. It had little oxygen, about point zero 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 one percent of current levels. But then about 2.3 billion years ago, there was a really big change when this change had a lot to do with photosynthesizing bacteria, which began to create oxygen. And Elizabeth Barber writing for the Christian Science Monitor had this great description. She says, it was so far as we know, a moment unlike any other in the universe. While Mars, just 60 million years older than Earth, browned and reddened, Earth was furnished in greens and blues and later in all the brilliant colors that decorate its planet and animals and all the protists in between. The modern Earth owes about 85% of its oxygen to phytoplankton, beginning with a cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, that first quilted the planet those billions of years ago. I love that. Quilted the planet (laughs) with this blue-green algae. Yeah, I love that description. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was reading uh, around different uh, accounts of the uh, the great oxidation event, and uh, Phil Plate of uh, Bad Astronomy, in, mm-hmm. in his uh, write up on this, he actually framed it more as this uh, as, as really a, a mass extinction event of one uh, species, like really kicking it into high gear mm-hmm. to the the detriment of most of the other life forms. Uh, because before uh, before this guy uh, hit the scene, um, we're talking about the uh, the cyanobacteria, not Phil mm-hmm. Plate. Um, you had you had a a world of simple bacteria, you mm-hmm. know, mostly in the ocean, and uh, it, and uh, you know these these bacteria just sort of doing their thing, and then uh, one superstar kicks it up and begins to to change the environment, to change the atmosphere, ultimately change the climate as well. Yeah, and um, I mean, I, what I think is so interesting about that cyanobacteria is not only did it contribute to the creation of diurnal and nocturnal patterns, which you we talked about in our Last episode, I believe it was called The Dark. Um, but yeah, as you say, it completely changed the, the profile of life and the oxygen profile. And in turn, in doing that, it helped to create multicellular life, which then would turn around and munch on the cyanobacteria and say, thanks a lot for all the oxygen and creating us. Yeah. I think we're going to feast upon you. I mean, it's kind of kind of like a horse race, right? Where uh, 
every, everything's kind of running neck and neck. And then one of the horses just really starts uh, running ahead of the pack. And it's clear that this this is going to be the winner. And in this case, the winner is going to be the kind of the initial model for everything that comes afterwards. Yeah, so you have, I mean, photosynthetic life forms are dominating here. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing about this is you look, you're going to travel back in deep time and you think about this, and the interesting question becomes, well, did it happen just in little pockets around the Earth, or did it just sort of spread willy-nilly? And we can't answer that, of course, right now. But it's interesting to even think that this huge sea change was happening. Yeah, uh, there was a 2013 paper published in Nature that actually suggested that the Earth's atmosphere was already somewhat oxygenated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not oxygen-rich or anything, but uh, but there there was already a certain amount of oxygenation going on about uh, three billion years ago, and so that that would revise the timeline some uh, somewhat, kind of insert a, a 600 million year transition point. Yeah, and I think transition is key, right? Yeah. Because that's not when the sea change happened. It just sort of like it was round. In pockets, mm-hmm. and if you look at um, that study, it's researchers at the University of Southern Denmark. They actually analyzed a pair of 2.92 to 2.96 billion year old rocks for evidence of oxidation, and lo and behold, they found it. So that's how we know that it was it was lurking, yes. shall we say? So fast forward to the present. We live in this world that has uh, plenty of oxygen. And, uh, and, and we all have sort of the grade school science understanding of, of how it happens. I think we can all picture that, uh, a, a, a diagram, a little <laughs> yeah. illustration. It always looks like it's all going down, like just at your local neighborhood park. Sure. And then you see that, you know, you see the human breathing out mm-hmm. the CO2 and then the human breathing in the oxygen that plants and trees create. And so this idea is that if we lived in this treeless world, this shrubless world, we wouldn't have any oxygen. And that's, Partly true, but it's not the whole story. Indeed, because we can really lay most of the credit at the feet, if they had feet, of the phytoplankton. These are single-cell plants that live at the ocean's surface. They only need two things for photosynthesis, and that is uh, energy from the sun, nutrients from the water, and uh, they're actually uh, responsible for producing half the world's oxygen, half of it. Yeah, so it really recasts your idea of, I think, uh how the atmosphere is formed, because we tend to think more land-based, but of course, mm-hmm. the more and more we learn about the ocean, the more we understand how much it is informing our atmosphere and how that changeability of yes. the ocean can really cause some some very um, drastic changes. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this and when you look at just models for global climate in general, uh, we really live on a water world, and the, the, the way that water behaves um, is, is tremendously important in our various systems, be it the... Uh, be it the creation of oxygen or be it our weather weather patterns. Yeah, and we could dive deep into the ocean and have an entire episode on this, and we perhaps will later. Um, I know that we have covered it before, and we've talked about this idea of dragging the ocean, really disturbing the life forms. Uh, There is completely sort of a stab in the dark by humans, not realizing that there are entire ecosystems that we're disturbing that, Mm -hmm. that actually affect us landlubbers. Um, so, all right, you guys, put that in your pipe and smoke it because we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about binding and storing oxygen like oxygen ninjas. All right, we're back. Uh, we've been talking about the, the origins of oxygen, the importance of oxygen, where oxygen is coming from in the world that we, uh, we experience every day. But now we're going to get a little high tech because, uh, you know how humans are. Uh, we can't help but, but hack into everything. 
We, we, we hack into our bodies. We hack into, uh, the world around us. Uh, and, and of course we also hack into, uh, digital infrastructures of our own creation. But, uh, but we can't help but tinker and try to, to figure out how to manipulate things a little more in our favor. And of course, uh, we've done that with oxygen as well. Particularly in this case with the binding and storing of oxygen. Yeah, I like to think about this as a couple of scientists sitting around, perhaps on the, the rooftop of their building one night. Mm-hmm. Saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could just like suck all the oxygen out of the room? And then they're like, yeah, we could do that. We could literally do that. We could literally do that. <laughs> and it turns out that researchers at the University of Southern Denmark had that kind of stoner moment. They synthesized a crystalline material that absorbs and stores oxygen in large quantities. As you say, it can be used to bind, store, and transport oxygen like a dense artificial hemoglobin. I love that, that idea that you just have your own portable hemoglobin. Yeah, I mean, the idea that you have this material that works like, uh, like a biological system, uh, that's, that's capable of just sucking all this oxygen out of the room. And if, and I have a, a feeling that a lot of you have probably caught some of at least the headlines, uh, that have made yeah. their way regarding this because people really latched onto that sucks all the ox- oxygen out of the room. Because it's it's an amazing stat, but of course uh, it can't help but stir our imaginations. We, we can't help but imagine somebody say pulling this out at a dinner party, and then all the air <laughs> in the room just rushes into this material. Thanksgiving? I don't think so. Yeah, conversation starts getting a little uh, uncomfortable. You just uh, whip it out and uh, takes the breath literally out of everyone's face. Yeah, and I think this was exacerbated because when it was first put out in the media, it was something like, "Oh, a spoonful of this stuff will suck out all the oxygen in room." In fact, a ten-liter bucket. Yeah. Of the solid material would be enough to store all the oxygen in a room. And we're talking about a few grains could contain enough oxygen in a single breath. Now, once trapped, this oxygen can be stored until the material is heated gently to release the oxygen. And the cool thing about this is that it can absorb and release oxygen a whole lot, like many different times without losing its ability And this is according to Christine McKenzie. She's a physics professor at the University of Southern Denmark. She said it's like dipping a sponge in water, squeezing the water out of it and repeating the process over and over again. Yes, she pointed out the material is both a sensor and a container for the oxygen. It can be used to bind, to store, to transport. So, I mean, you can really, the the mind can run wild with the various uh, potential uses for this. The most obvious one, of course, would be for, uh, for any kind of environment where you needed to take oxygen with you, be it diving traveling into space, mm-hmm. but I mean, also it would have tremendous uh, potential uh, for use in automobiles that use fuel cells uh, and need a regulated oxygen supply. So it, it's again, when you think about the fact that we live in such an oxygen dependent world and we have oxygen dependent lives, uh, they're, they're tre- there's tremendous application for this uh, technology. Yeah. Now the key component of the material is cobalt because it's bound in a specifically designed organic molecule and again, this is from Mackenzie. She says that cobalt gives the material precisely the molecular electronic structure that enables it to absorb oxygen from its surroundings. And she said the mechanism is well known from all breathing creatures on Earth. Humans and many other species use iron, while other animals like crabs and spiders use copper. She said small amounts of metals are essential for the absorption of oxygen. So actually, it's not entirely surprising to see this effect in our new material. So here again is another example of biomimicry, right? Right. Yeah, and indeed, that's one of the tremendous things about this material is that it's 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 just a it's a material that when we manipulate it a little bit, 
it can it can actually uh, replicate some of the uh, the processes that uh, that go on inside the human body. Yeah. Now, Mackenzie and her team are researching whether light can trigger oxygen's release from the, the material, which would be halfway to artificial photosynthesis. Uh-huh. Again. The implication of this is is pretty widespread, and especially when you're thinking about terraforming. Yes. So in this, we get into the quest to create a material that is essentially an artificial leaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in that it looks like a leaf necessarily, but that it, it can carry out photosynthesis. And so uh, in this, we turn to the Royal College of Art where Julian Melacori has developed a photosynthetic material that allegedly lives and breathes just like a leaf. Uh, it absorbs carbon dioxide and water and releases oxygen. And it works by suspending chloroplast. Uh, these are the, the part of the plant where photosynthesis actually happens in a material made from silk protein. Yeah, Melchiori uh, envisions the facades of buildings and lampshades covered <laughs> in this photosynthetic material, and it would essentially exhale fresh air for us. I, lo- I love these sort of utopian, futuristic technologies. Yeah, yeah. you can imagine somebody's kind of waxing poetic about it. In the future, the, the, the lamp will not only illuminate the room, but it will breathe. The lamp is a living thing and deserving of our, of our respect. It is, a, it is our cohabitator. That's your utopian voice? Yeah. I yeah, like that's it. That's my utopian voice. <laughs> of course, the, the other implication of this, again, is, hey, you know, we know that we can grow plants in zero gravity, but a material like this could produce oxygen with less management and in time and effort required for growing plants. So, again, terraforming off planet. You know, and it's it, I have to say, though, it, it's kind of it's kind of scary in a way because it's like saying, oh, well, we don't necessarily need the plants to get what we need. Right. Maybe it just ends up uh, with a situation like in um uh, like in Silent Running, where they end up deciding to just blow up all the gardens that they have in space. They don't need them anymore. Maybe that's why they didn't need them need them anymore, because they had it. They developed a technology like this that they could run on Earth and just build all the plants they wanted. It's Plastic funny. trees, if you will. It's funny how technology like this makes the movie Wally even yeah. more relevant. This idea that we will be on this uh, generation ship or generational yeah. ship, and, and and looking back at like this specimen of a plant and all this <laughs> footage of growing things. Now, it's worth noting that, that both of these uh, examples, both of these toes we've talked about, I mean, th- these are early goings with these materials. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're not being manufactured yet. You're not going to be buying them even at Sharper Image in the next uh, few months. Uh, but they show tremendous uh, potential, and it really helps us um, get a better idea of, of where we're headed in the future. Well, and, you know, you can sit here and think about, oh, it could, you know, maybe it could even help with our Earth's atmosphere if things got out of whack, right? Mm-hmm. You could create some sort of balance there. Yeah, not a replacement by any means. I was being a bit uh, hyperbolic with all that. But but in terms of just sort of tweaking things a little bit more in our favor. Yeah, and then, you know, emergency room medicine and space exploration. It mm-hmm. has really some, some great ideas tagging along with it. And then, of course, you have more of the dystopian... Right. Negative view. And this is where things get probably much more fictional and dark. And you start thinking, ah, oh, but then perhaps the world takes a turn and there is no ability to restore balance. And, mm-hmm. you know, the oxygen is, is, is poorly saturated throughout. And it becomes a question of the oxygen haves and the oxygen have nots. I love that. That's, that's a tremendous uh, vision of uh, the future where, where just the oxygen you breathe that we take for granted now is no longer free. Um, and of course, I, I can't help but think of like a potential like cinematic uh, layout where uh, uh, you know 
guy walks into a bank, uh, puts on a gas mask and whips out his, uh, his bucket of material and, uh, sucks all the oxygen <laughs> in. Then he runs off with the money or, uh, you know, it, it's easy to, to, to run wild with those scenarios yeah. as well. But where, where I see a, the real potential for possible weaponization of this kind of thing is not so much a, like an oxygen sucking, um, device. But it makes me think, um, you know, what else is possible with metamaterials in the future? Could we create one that uh, that generates a toxic chemical compound instead of just creating oxygen? I don't know, but it makes me wonder. What is possible? Yeah, this is the interesting dark territory. Yeah. So does it enter into bioterrorism, I think is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Could If we can create a material that, that traps oxygen, if we can create a material that acts like a leaf, you know, what's, what's to say that in the future we can't create uh, materials capable of other chemical uh, transitions? Yeah. Good, good questions here. Um, you know what I'm going to throw in here? Just because that's a bit depressing. What's that? Um, the question about how baby birds breathe inside an egg. I came across this during oh. our research. Because you know how you can kind of go down that sort of research vortex mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I don't, that's not really relevant, but that's quite interesting. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever thought about that. Well, well, What's the answer? Well, the folks at Mental Floss did, um, and they have an article on it, and it says, like, you know, obviously we know that when we're babies, we we have uh, the luxury of an umbilical cord to give us oxygen. But baby birds, well, they have to sit inside of that egg, and it turns out that when the eggs are laid by the mother, they're really warm, and as they cool, the material inside the egg shrinks a little bit, and the two membranes, they pull apart a little and create a small pocket or sack of air. And then as the developing bird grows, it breathes in oxygen from the air sac and it exhales carbon dioxide. And there are several thousand microscopic pores all over the surface of the egg, and this allows that CO2 to escape and fresh air to get in. Well, that's beautiful. I've never, never even thought about that. Right. I mean, talk about a portable atmosphere. Yeah, and it brings us right back again to the egg, from Churchill's <laughs> egg to the, the egg of uh, your common bird. That's right. There we go. 360. Yeah. All right, well, there you have it, a little crash course in oxygen, where it comes from, what we do with it, and what we're trying to do with it with some cutting-edge technology. Um, hey, why don't you check out our website? Go over to uh, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is where you'll find all of our podcast episodes way back to the very beginning, hundreds and hundreds of podcast episodes. You can listen to a new one every day for over a year and counting. It's uh it's great stuff. Check it out. And we also have all our videos, all our podcast episodes, links out to social media accounts, pictures of what we look like, uh, anything and everything. Find it right there. And if you want to share your plots for a dystopian future, well, you can do that by sending us an email. And you can send it to blowthemindhowstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.